Hello, this is Eric Rivenis, and another episode of Aghast at the Past 1892 is finally here. And yikes, some dirty, rotten, scoundrelly stuff ahead today. March 13th, here we come. Actually, on this episode, I'm going to review some of the more interesting true crime stories of the past week. Lots to cover, but first, one of the major national stories of the week, a blizzard blasted its way across Midwestern America and brought great misery and death. Account after account of suffering was summarized in an Associated Press story distributed across the country on March 13th. Devil's Lake, North Dakota, March 11th. William M. Griffin, a farmer, was found frozen to death Thursday, half a mile from town. Griffin was returning from his farm and was caught in the blizzard. A mile from town, he abandoned his team and started to walk to the city. One ox was found dead near the wagon. The deceased leaves a wife and three small children. Other abandoned teams are reported and searching parties are out in all directions. Grafton, North Dakota, March 11th. A man and his team were frozen between here and the depot. They were found by the station man. The man was lying down in the wagon box. A couple married here Tuesday came near suffering the same fate. They were overtaken by the storm two miles south of town. Their team, fortunately, wandered into a warm corner. Grand Forks, North Dakota, March 11th. Thomas Nugent, one of the pioneer citizens of this county, lost his life in the storm Tuesday night. He left this city in the evening for his farm, 12 miles north, with his team and wagon. After the storm cleared, he was found in his wagon, two miles from the home road. The horses had been unhitched and turned loose, and both perished. The horses apparently became exhausted and refused to go further against the storm, and he lay in the wagon to wait for it to blow over. He must have gone to sleep and became benumbed as it became colder. Mr. Nugent was a highly respected citizen and leaves a large family. And the stories like this go on and on and on. I just read from page 9 of Logansport, Indiana's The Daily News. On that same page, a really weird little story I just had to share. The headline, Needle Came Out of Her Leg. Martinsville, Indiana, March 11th. Mrs. Sally Enos of Morgantown, this county, swallowed a needle when a child, from which she experienced no unpleasant effects. It was extracted from the flesh just above her left knee a day or two ago, having wandered through her body all these years and finally working to the surface where it caused a pricking sensation as if a pin were sticking her. The needle was black, but not corroded. So a quick explanation before we get to the next story. 
The term rattan furniture is a pretty common one for us in 2021. Rattan is the name for a climbing or trailing vine-like palm native to Southeast Asia. It was also used to produce canes, especially effective for beating. Many of us have heard the term caning, used as a form of punishment in countries like Singapore and Malaysia. Well, rattan canes were used for the exact same purpose in late 19th century America. This story is from the front page of the Boston Globe, March 9th. The headline? Bethel's Terror. A child's terror of the rattan held threateningly in the hands of Master Frank Morse of the Sherwin School resulted in a plunge from a two-story window to the brick-lined yard of the school yesterday afternoon. The child, Bethel Elward, is tossing on a bed of pain at his home, 16 Madison Street, suffering from a broken leg, a sprained foot, and numerous internal injuries, the exact nature of which cannot be determined at present. It appears that the boy, who is 13 years old and quite stout for his age, has been causing his teachers much trouble lately by his truant proclivities and remained away from school all day Monday and yesterday morning. His father, Daniel Elward, was informed of the boy's doings yesterday noon and ordered him to attend school in the afternoon, which he did. When the boy entered the school, his teacher told him that the master wanted to interview him in the latter's private room on the second floor, where the instruments of chastisement are kept, and where the punishments are usually dealt out to the bad boys. Just what took place between the boy and the master after the door had been closed and the rod taken from its rack is a question of dispute between the two. But the master's statement to the boy's parents is accepted by them as the probable true story. The boy was told how many blows of the rod would be the punishment fit for the crime and reluctantly held out his hand. He was struck twice when he rebelled and told the master that he wouldn't stand any more of it and proceeded to make vigorous resistance. The boy's father says that the master claims that immediately following the boy's resistance, he, the master, went to the door and pressed a button to call for assistance to subdue the boy's rebellious spirit. According to the same statement, the boy then rushed to the window, and before the master could prevent it, he jumped to the yard below. The distance is fully 30 feet. The boy remained stunned for some minutes, and the master, with the assistance of several of the teachers and pupils, carried him into the school, and physicians were summoned, and a messenger sent for the boy's mother. Sometime afterwards, the boy was carried home by the police of Division 10. Dr. Bowles set the broken limb and told the parents that the little fellow was suffering from internal injuries which might prove serious. A Globe reporter visited the house last night. The boy's condition had become more serious and he was moaning in delirium. 
At times, he mistook his father for the master and filled the house with his screams. The mother said, When I went to the school, I was met by Mr. Morse, who wanted to explain to me how the thing happened before I had seen my boy. Mr. Morse told me that the boy made a forcible resistance when he undertook to punish him, and that he started to ring a bell for assistance when the boy made for the window and jumped out. The boy is only 13 years old, and it doesn't seem to me as if an able-bodied man would need assistance in forcibly overcoming him. If the boy had made a sudden plunge from the window, he would not have landed on his feet. When he was taken home, he was conscious for some time and gave me a statement of the affair. He said that the master told him he must have 25 strokes on each hand, and that when he became frightened and got out on the sill of the window, that he hung there for some time before he dropped. While he was hanging there, he repented of his intention to get away and claims that he yelled for Mr. Morse to help him in getting back. But the latter told him to stay there until assistance arrived, and then he would pull him in again. He hung there, as he says, until his strength gave out, when he let go his hold and dropped, landing on his feet. The poor little fellow suffered so much that he became delirious and made such outcries that he was put under the influence of ether and has not come to again. It goes on to say that the parents intended to have the matter thoroughly investigated, although they believed that the master was probably not to blame for the unfortunate affair. So, I was able to find a little bit more information on Ancestry.com about Bethel Hayward. His actual name was Herbert Bethel Hayward, born on June 22, 1879. He did survive the jump. I found his World War I draft registration card, which said that he was married to a Jenny Elizabeth Alward. Nothing after that on my very superficial dig. So here's a story, perhaps a bit of karma for an abuser of animals. Out of the Missoula Weekly Gazette, page 2. But the event happened in Tacoma, Washington, March 7th. Charles Grody, aged 32 and single, was brought from Easton to the Fanny Paddock Hospital in a dying condition today. He was hunting with friends yesterday east of the Stampede Tunnel, when the hunter's hounds began fighting. To quiet them, Grody struck them with the butt of a Winchester rifle. The blow exploded the gun, the ball entering Grody's abdomen, piercing his bladder and shattering the hip bones. Should he survive the shock, he will die of inflammation. His father resides in County Donegal, Ireland. Next out of Pennsylvania's Mansfield Advertiser, page 2, March 9th, a murder that I regretfully neglected to tell you about. This happened on February 21st in Chicago. The headline, Dark Deeds Alleged. Never fear, by the way, I am here to catch you up. Chicago, March 4th. Dr. Henry M. Scudder, 
son of the famous pastor of Plymouth Church, is under arrest at his father's home, 921 Grand Boulevard, charged with murder. He is sick and is closely guarded by officers. The warrant on which Dr. Scudder is held was sworn out by the venerable F.H. Dunton, proprietor of the Spirit of the Times and the father-in-law of the accused. Scudder married an adopted daughter of Dunton's, whose feeble wife had a fortune of $100,000 in her own right, which, up to a few days before the time of her death, she had purposed leaving to some blood relatives. On the morning of February 21st, Dr. Scudder, who was a constant visitor at the Dunton mansion, was alone with Mrs. Dunton during the temporary absence of the servant. Mr. Dunton was in bed in an adjoining room, recovering from an illness with which it is also claimed Dr. Scudder is painfully connected. Mrs. Dunton uttered a piercing scream, which was heard all over the house. At or about the same moment, a witness, whose name is withheld for the present, saw her, Mrs. Dunton, on all fours, on the floor, and Dr. Scudder striking her on the head with something like a club. The witness was in fear of the Scudders and suppressed the fact until later. When Mrs. Dunton screamed, everyone in the house ran to the room, the first arrival being Mr. Dunton, whom Dr. Scudder gently pushed back, assuring him that he was too ill to see his wife. To the rest of the family, he said that Mrs. Dunton had fallen down three times and struck her head against the furniture. Mrs. Dunton was lying on her face, with her head bleeding profusely, and she said nothing intelligible before she died. Dr. Scudder and others started out for physicians, and Dr. Bassett and Dr. Levitt came in. They made an examination of Mrs. Dunton's scalp and found that it had on it five or more wounds which penetrated to the skull bone. It was plain also that they were made downward and forward on the top and rear of the head. Dr. Scudder told the other physicians that he was present when Mrs. Scudder fell three times against the furniture while he was attempting to hold her up. Dr. Bassett expressed astonishment. The explanation was not sufficient to Dr. Levitt. To his practiced eye, the wounds were not such as a casual fall would produce. He communicated his suspicions to the husband of the dead woman, who recalled circumstances connected with the will, which sharpened him in memory and shaped his action later. It is charged that Dr. Scudder tried his hands first on Mr. Dunton. On the Thursday preceding Mrs. Dunton's death, he was conspicuously attentive to Mr. Dunton, who was in very feeble health. He accompanied him downtown to his office and told Mr. Dunton that he was evidently ill and he wanted to watch over him. 
just before the couple left Mr. Dunton's office to go home for the night, Dr. Scudder told him that he must take a stimulating drought. Then he administered to him, in the presence of witnesses, a dose of something that he called brandy and quinine. By the time Mr. Dunton got home, he was out of his head and then went into a comatose state, exhibiting all the symptoms of apoplexy, from which he did not recover for 48 hours. It is supposed that the failure of this attempt may have produced the determination to put Mrs. Dunton out of the way. Previous to both of these events, however, Dr. Scudder had made arrangements to have Mrs. Dunton make a more satisfactory will. Mrs. Dunton had often said that she would not object to making some little altercations in her will. Accordingly, three days before her death, and while Mr. Dunton was in a comatose state, Dr. Scudder brought her a new will in which the desired altercations were embodied and which pleased her very much. Dr. Scudder read it to her, had her sign it, and then had it witnessed by himself, his 14-year-old daughter, and Mrs. Dunton's 15-year-old daughter. He then made a pretext to take the pen and ink downstairs, and soon afterward got little Miss Dunton to follow him. He told her that she had signed the will in the wrong place and easily induced her to sign it again, as she supposed, in the right place. But the allegation is made that she was deluded into signing a different will as witness. It is charged that afterward, Dr. Scudder and his daughter also signed it as witnesses, and that then he forged Mrs. Dunton's name to it. This third will give pretty much all of Mrs. Dunton's property to Mrs. Scudder. Wounds that fully confirm the suspicion that Mrs. F.H. Dunton was murdered were disclosed at the autopsy, held upon the woman's body at Janesville, Wisconsin. Six external injuries and five fractures of the skull show how death was caused. The examination was made by Janesville physicians. This next story is extraordinarily tragic. A terrible accident and a final request. The headline is A Romance at a Deathbed. This out of the Lancaster Semi-Weekly Intelligencer, Wednesday, March 9th, page 4. With the funeral of Mary Ann McGuire, which took place at West Elizabeth near Pittsburgh on Thursday, ended a touching little romance. The girl died, longing to pronounce with her last breath the vows which would unite her to a faithful lover, that her tombstone might bear his name. He held her hand to the end, and then the faithful friends who followed her to the grave made a narrow escape from losing their lives in a treacherous river. Miss McGuire was injured in a freight wreck on February 25th. She was standing in the street near her home when two coal trains 
crashed together, and an empty car was hurled about 40 feet, striking her. She was at the time arranging with her uncle, John Donnelly, to act as godmother to his child. Previous to her injury, few of her friends knew that she was engaged to Nicholas Tobin, a young man of Petersburg. She first asked for a priest, and next for her lover. Tobin was soon at her side and remained almost constantly until the end. His last act of thoughtful attention was to aid her stiffening fingers to clasp the candles as she breathed her last, a rite of the Catholic Church of which she was a devoted member. A few hours before her death, Miss McGuire and Tobin asked Father McCourt to marry them. The lover desired to honor his love as his wife after she was dead, he explained, and it had seemed sweet to her that the thought was in his mind. The priest refused. It was against the rules of the church, he said. Both insisted that an exception be made in their case. The girl especially pleading with such earnestness that the priest was much moved. It was probable he would have complied had not her condition shortly become such that all parties acquainted with the project thought best to abandon it, fearing she would not be able to comprehend the ceremony. The Pennsylvania Railroad, whose car killed Miss McGuire, bore the expenses of her brief illness and funeral, and at an expense of over $100, covered her casket with flowers. About 50 persons in carriages and on foot, returning from her funeral, were adrift in a nearby river for some time, owing to the breaking of the rope by which the ferry boat is pulled across. The mourners were wild with alarm, and when the boat was steered and drifted ashore by a few cool-headed men, a number of women jumped out in about two feet of mud and were rescued with difficulty. Jealousy is the motive for this next murder, and the headline says it all. Jealous woman, a divorced wife, not a man. Little Betty Moore's murderer. Charleston, West Virginia, March 11th. Developments of a sensational character have been made in the brutal murder of Betty Moore, the 14-year-old girl whose dead body was found in her home on Slack's branch with the throat cut. At the coroner's request, which was finished at 3 o'clock this morning, it was shown that Eliza Hackney, the divorced wife of Lewis Ellswick, was the murderer. The evidence shows that Ellswick, who worked occasionally for the Reverend M.S. Moore, the murdered girl's father, had fallen in love with Miss Moore, and it was reported among the neighbors that they were shortly to be married. This reached the ears of the divorced wife, who wanted her former husband to remarry her. And upon hearing it, she told her brother last Sunday that she would get even with Miss Moore 
and that she should not marry Lewis. In order to carry out her determination, she dressed herself last Wednesday in male attire, and during the absence of the father and mother of Miss Moore, went to the house and cut her throat with what is supposed to have been a razor. The fight for life on the part of Miss Moore and the determination of her jealous enemy to kill her must have been a frightful struggle, as the right hand of the unfortunate girl was slashed through the palm to the bone as though she had grasped the sharp instrument in order to save herself. The room where the murder was committed looked like a slaughterhouse, the sight being most sickening. The coroner's verdict was that the Moore girl came to her death by a sharp instrument used by Eliza Hackney. The woman was arrested and placed in jail in this city this afternoon. She is about 25 years old and is a free and intelligent talker on any subject except the murder, which she denies having committed. She is good-looking and takes the matter very calmly, but it is believed that she will break down and make a confession before morning. The woman's brother is the most important witness against her. And finally, one of the toughest juvenile gang members in New York City, and she's a 12-year-old girl. This story, out of the Fall River Daily Herald, page 3, March 9th, the headline is, Shockingly Depraved Children. Four children before a city court as a gang of burglars, and a 12-year-old girl the boss of the gang. Surely this was a scene to make an innocent spectator stare. And this was the scene in Brooklyn the other day. The charge was brought by a saloon keeper who swore the youthful quartet had stolen his gold watch, overcoat, some shirts, and other property. But there was not much need of evidence, for all the four owned up to being professional thieves. Nellie Larkins, the ruling spirit, 12 years old, is probably the most depraved child in Brooklyn. She has previously been arrested for gross immorality and is known to the police as a clever pickpocket. Maggie Becker is 15 years old, but no larger than Nellie and not so shrewd. Both the girls told with glee of how they went to various men's rooms and after a deal of fun, spotted the place and afterward slipped in and swiped the stuff. Johnny Hoffman, aged 16, is also a skillful thief, but August Hesse is new to the business and had to be led on by the girls. The experienced officials at the jail were put to the blush by the language of the two girls. They and Johnny Hoffman are pronounced beyond redemption and must remain in the places provided for till they are of age. But Hesse has one more chance at home. 
I just want to add that there are no new updates on the Tina Davis or the Frida Ward case. Back again soon with another episode of Aghast at the Past, 1892.